This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi, I'm Katie Mitchell, Managing Director of Scene Displays. And what I really love about retail is, I guess, the experience and what that experience means to you. So whether you're in a group or on your own, you're taking out retail therapy, um, you know, it's all about that moment of walking into a store and the music hitting you, the colours, the textures, the explorative nature of retail is just one that fascinates me every time. It brings out that innate sense of curiosity that as human beings we need to satisfy. Um, and I think the shopping experience is normally undervalued um, for providing that. From New York City, you're listening to Retail is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Retail is Your Business. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Rico, and I'm so pleased to see your other host, Rebecca Fitz, staring right at me through my computer screen as we do these days. Hi, Rebecca. Hello, Mark. How are you? You know, I'm I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm um, uh, I I'm so excited to see the way that the world is waking up, uh, in bits and spurts, and uh, as if we've all we're we're all wiping the sleep from our eyes after a long winter's nap in a way, and and uh, maybe we're a little cranky, but we'll you know. Once we take our shower and have our coffee, we're going to be better and better. Kind of, I kind of, you know. Yeah, we're, 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 we're inching our way out of it. Inching <laughs> our maybe way. we're not one, inching. We're, we're shuffling our way we, towards We've got one, one slipper on, <laughs> you know, we're, we're trudging our, shuffling our way to the kitchen right now, but, but we are on the move. So I like that. Um, speaking of, uh. I don't even know. I can't segue from that. All I can tell you is we, we just, uh, I was trying to segue, but there just wasn't one. Now, you I mentioned was, the world and we have someone who, who yes. is, is across the pond from across, us. So that there across. we go. Thanks to 21st century technology. We're able to talk to Katie Mitchell. Katie, welcome to the show all the way from London. Great to speak with you. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So lovely to meet you both. So yeah, Same here. So uh, Katie, I would love to lead off with this you're you're the we'll unpack your company in a moment but you're in a very interesting perch given what you do in my opinion and that is you get to see from you know they say you got to be in the room you're you're in the room in a way with with big brand names as well as smaller brands um in the strategy of trying to be ahead of the curve in creating experience in retail and frankly success and conversion in retail. So I want to ask you sort of a bold question and that is based on all the data you're sort of accumulating in that head and all the things you're seeing and the patterns that of where you're finding these executives are thinking without giving away the secret sauce, what's next? I guess first up the way that, I approach retail with my brands. You know, you touched upon the fact that I work with a lot of brands. He's actually looking at the consumer and, you know, what the consumer wants and what the consumer needs and what their desires are. 
And I guess when we talk about what's next in retail, it's really about flipping it on its head and asking, you know, what's next for the consumer? What is the next thing that they're actually going to need and they want? Um, And they expect from um, that kind of retail space. So I guess what's next is the fact that brands are really going to have to start opening their ears and, you know, really having to start listening to what their consumers want, you know, and, and, um, you know, what support that they need. We have this age old kind of saying um, when we often talk to our clients and it's not about selling anymore. We're not talking about selling products. We are talking about making a connection um, and making our consumers see us as a, a valued partner in their life. You know, how can we offer support and guidance? You know, how can our products and our services really support our consumers growth, their wants, their needs and their desires? So I guess, yeah, to kind of answer your question in quite a roundabout way, it's going to be all about the consumers and the consumers leading and listening to what they they need. You know, I'm excited about experiences coming back um, outside of being asked to purell my hands right before I, you know, start to touch anything and things like that. But I am curious, and you probably have a little glimpse into this or are starting these conversations about, um, you know, how if, if it's all about the consumer how they want to have experiences. And I, I've actually thought of this, uh, Mark knows this on the show. Um, I give myself a gold star or even a yes. gold medal in shopping. Um, but what kind of experience am I going to want when I go back to the stores? And by the way, I do long for, God, wouldn't it be nice if somebody, you know, if I could have a glass of champagne while I'm browsing, like I, I'm, I'm that low ball. Mm. I don't need all the bells and whistles to go off um, and, and how that will look, um, you know, because it, it, we're just in this very funny period. I'll give you an example. My company um, that I work for, we're just beginning to get together in small little groups and have happy hour outside. And mm-hmm. I saw someone that I probably hadn't seen since March. We sat next to each other. And when I saw her, I wanted to hug her and we almost did. And we knew that really wasn't what we should do. We were outside. We, I had a mask on. She had taken hers off. So when, you know, I, how are we going to get through these phases until we get to, I don't have a mask on and I'm going to have an experience. And I, I, I think that's probably, I mean, if, if I'm running a retail store or stores thinking about, um, I don't know, is it in phases? How are we going to, how are we going to learn to be social again? You know, I mean, they through through a lot of stuff out there. So like, what we no. uh, unpack it as you see fit. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a strategy that we are working on. And I guess in London, it's slightly different, I guess, to maybe um, what you guys are experiencing. We've actually got a bit of a roadmap um, in terms of life opening back up. Um, and if we to follow that similar roadmap, i.e., um, you know, stores are reopening on April the 12th, um, and then we're looking at, we can converse with people outside and then that moves to inside. And then as of June the 21st, life as we know it supposedly is going to change quite dramatically. And even that human contact is going to be possible again. And I guess not just to mirror that in our in our retail nature, but 
what that's saying to me is that we do and you know Rebecca completely to your point about how can we do this in safe phases and that's exactly how we need to look at it with retail and I think one of the primary drivers of this is looking at that safe space and yes everyone is craving an experience and yes they are demanding so much more but like you say I mean I think I've even forgotten you know what it's going to be like to shop in person or you know, even just spending longer periods of time outside and planning your day around something other than waking up, going to the office, coming home, you know, it's going to be very different. And I think the way that we need to look at it is from that wellness space. So how can we create these safe spaces, even within the retail landscape? So you know, with my agency, we talk a lot lot about calm design. And that's actually how can we design with this idea of wellness in mind? Is it through colours? Is it through services? Is it through, you know, making people feel safe in an environment? Um, So I think that's one of the ways, one of the phases is how can we look at it strategically and ensuring people feel safe and feel they're being catered to. That really speaks to me because I think it, it actually goes beyond feeling safe, although obviously that was the, the, the primary target there. But I want to know that when I go a place, I feel better than when I wasn't there. Mm, yeah. That makes me want to go there uh, to be there again. You know, I think about in there, there's a, a super, uh, you know, a food market in, in at least in New York called Fairway. Uh, wherever else it is. Um, and there was this one particular fairway. I know that every time I went into the the produce aisle, I I used to ask my wife, I'm like, do they pump oxygen in here like they do like in uh, casinos? Because I always feel when I'm in this aisle, like I breathe better, like I feel better in the aisle. I swear they got to be doing something. And it made me want to go there. Because I always felt great when I went in that store. And I, so, so how much of that connects not just to the experience when you were there, but the psychology of connecting the brand to the idea of it being a better place than not being there? How do you, how do you tackle that from a psychological standpoint? I guess it's, it's tapping into, um, the way that us as humans, you know, interact with places. Um, you know, as an agency, we actually did um, a big piece of work looking at neuroscience and actually how uh-huh. people, you know, perceive and receive and interact with spaces. And it was a big piece of work, actually. And it was looking at, um, yeah, I guess what the brain does when you're in these spaces. And we looked at it from different angles and we looked at how a brand can really um, embody you in their values and their DNA. Um, And that's, you know, something that's super, super important. I think as a brand, it's about telling stories and and getting your consumers to understand the story that you're trying to tell in a really coherent way. And once that consumer understands that story, you go on a journey with them. And, you know, you're on that journey to better yourself. Um, You know, you interact with that brand because like you've said Mark it makes you feel good it makes you feel better when you interact with it and you you leave either that digital landscape or that physical landscape thinking that was a really positive experience and they get me you know it's it's sounds weird Mm -hmm. it's almost like personifying a brand you know making them feel like they understand you as a human being 
Um, so I think when you talk about the psychology, it really is about personalizing that experience. And, you know, it's not going to be a one size fits all, but there's definitely brands and even brands that exist now that I'm sure each one of us could say, I love that brand because they get me. And I feel amazing once I've experienced um, shopping with them, once I've, you know, explored a store, I've gone on their website. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be about understanding people personally. Um, that's going to be key. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm having this experience, not the grocery store, but um, we're allowed to go do some workout stuff. And there was an article about this as well, but even on a personal level. Um, and I, it probably won't be for a lot of brands because I think exercise is, is different, but um, they might be able to take some plays out of the playbook, which is um, my orange theory has a head person whose name is Frankie. I go to all his classes and you can't have classes right now. So it's open gym, mm -hmm. but his, um, cheering us on in the way that he can, cause he can instruct, um, and just his dedication. So he said, I get up at five in the morning. I open a couple of orange theories. I come here and I, you know, conduct open gym. Um, and the way he ends class a little yogi like, but was, you know, just, I'm so glad you came out. I'm inspired by you all. This is why I get up at five in the morning and open two orange theories and come down. Um, and for me, and I think the rest of the class, how, however you feel about exercise, felt like we want to go and I'm going to really get, go over the top. Um, and I am not, I, I love Orange Theory, but like, I really want to be one of these piece, people who's under the orange lights with Frankie doing this thing. Um, and I'm sure I, I've also had some great sales service, um, you know, in, in shopping pre and post COVID. It's like, yeah, I want to go there again. It lights me up in some mm -hmm. way, whether that's the neurons in my brain or my heart or or whatever it is. So um, I think that's interesting as well. But you've mentioned a couple of other things that I think are really we don't always think so deeply about as a consumer, but we probably should like um, colors and textures and what's mm -hmm. calming. Um, I'm just coming from getting the vaccine and they just did a great job of being kind, great essential workers, shuffling me through. Um, I didn't really have a lot of questions, but they gave a lot of answers. Um, you know, will there be, will there be a transition like that? And, and by the way, the UK has a nice roadmap as well. And I'm not sure the US mm. is quite as um, definitive. <laughs> I, we've certainly talked about the emotional part of it, mm. but you had uh, touched upon, um, you know, colors and textures mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of more than nitty gritty of the physical space. Um, what are you hearing and seeing um, or, or retailers might be experimenting with or about to experiment with as they are coming out of, um, you know, the, the shutdown? Sure. I guess, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question and, and, you know, something we've learned since the pandemic is actually our values and our values in home life, our values with friends and family. And what we're seeing is, um, you know, hopefully not a trend, but actually our focus around, you know, sustainable living. You know, we've been trapped at home. We have been cooking for ourselves a lot more. We haven't been able to consume maybe as much. Um, you know, we've been 
basically taken back to basics in some sense. You know, we've stripped back of going to bars and restaurants and clubs and, you know, theatres and all of those rich things that we've really enjoyed. And actually, we've had to take comfort in the simplest of things. So whether that's, you know, sitting on the sofa with your family and watching a film or whether that's getting into gardening and, you know, really appreciating the space that you have around you. And the way that we have shifted our lifestyle is really being reflected in the way that we interact with brands. And we are now seeking brands that mirror those values that we see in our everyday life. And one of these big drivers is around, you know, sustainability and how circular our choices are. When we talk about a few years ago, sustainability becoming a bit of a buzzword in the retail industry, and let's be honest, it was a bit of a buzzword, you know, a lot of brands were starting to claim that they were sustainable and, you know, they got called out in the media a lot. Um, Yes, exactly. The two totally connect. I agree. And we're evolving to it. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, and I think what we've started to see with the pandemic is actually we've had time to reconsider a lot of our choices and do a lot more research into the brands that we convey with. Right. And, you know, some brands that claim to be doing something may not be quite right. Um, But I think the brands that we are connecting with now are truly trying to make a difference. And so that is being reflected in the way that our brands want to show up and they want to show up in physical retail. So when we talk about textures and colors and materials, more often than not, a lot of our clients are turning to that circular nature of materiality. So how can they demonstrate their values through the materials that they're using? So we are working a lot more with sustainable artists, sustainable materials, circular materials and you know I'm not talking about just recycling things I'm talking about you know what's been the journey of a certain material what's the transportation of that material and you know does it make sense to be using this far-flung you know material from another country because you know the shipping costs are going to be extortionate or you know we damn plastic so much but actually the problem with plastic is that it's more often than not used inappropriately you know we're using a material that is used for things like you know i'm trying to think of something like bins outside um, garbage like trash bins as I should talk in your language um, outside but then there's they're used for throwaway moments for bottles you know it's there's such a difference you know using plastic to last is one thing using plastic for throwaway is another so to answer I guess yeah to touch on what you're saying there I think the materiality is very much going to be from that circular space and, you know, one that really marries up with our consumers' values in that sense. I I love that. And I'm feeling that too. I I wanted to be like, I think we're going to come out and be a kinder, gentler, and more thoughtful society. Um, Mm -hmm. And I hope, I I, I don't know if we can say that across the board, because there was so much worldly discourse, um, you know, in the US, and I think everywhere, racially, politically, uh, probably more so in the US politically, it's calmed down a little bit. But um, 
I am hoping certainly that that transfers. And um, we were talking about on another show, we have, um, there's a great newsletter called Retail Brew. And they did, it was, it was funny because the the writer is really funny, but it wasn't funny um, in that we were going to have a box ellipse uh, instead of an, a, a couple, a, a, you know, we were having so many boxes in just Manhattan being, you know, and I really feel it. I'm a shopper. I shopped online. And when I go to break down the boxes and bring them out to the incinerator, I'm like, I'm a household of two people and two cats. Um, So it's not five children and two adults or anything like that. How much weight that puts on the world. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've happily been a person who hasn't brought um, a plastic bag into a store or gotten one. Um, And I know the UK is way ahead of us on that, um, but that it will really kind of transfer into our values, whether that's in sustainability mm-hmm. or kinder and gentler or, you know, uh, thinking more healthily for ourselves or or, or for the, the planet Earth, <laughs> which we certainly should be thinking about. Um, so that's interesting. I did post um, an interesting article from Fast Company called What It'll Be Like to Shop in 2030. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, I can't wait to read this one because we keep on talking about what it's going to be to shop like tomorrow. Um, And a huge part of it was that you could be taxed on a T-shirt, you know, if it wasn't sustainably made and you can make the choice to buy that T-shirt, not have it be sustainable, or you can have the tax. And how how will that work? That's probably pretty far down the road. But um, I know personally, I love this conversation. Mark's probably more of an environmentalist than I am even. So <laughs> uh, so I think it, it it's great. Um, and I, I, I hope it comes to us very soon. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think the tax thing is really interesting because – you know, even just applying that tax is going to get people thinking twice, right? Isn't it? You know, do I really need that t-shirt? Do I really want it for that extra, however much it's going to be? And one of the things we've actually, you know, started to look at, one of the things with materiality is that there's a conversation around, and I think it's the same in the States, but over here, when you buy food, it very much clearly gives you the fat, the salt, the sugar content on the front. I don't know if you guys do that, but in the UK, it's law now to have that on the front of um, packaging. So even if you're picking up a two pound sandwich or, you know, a big piece of meat, it's going to have that that kind of um, that kind of indication on it, you know, where where all the sources are from. And they're talking about doing that with materials. So whether it be a wood, a plastic, a fabric, Good. it will all come with this certification of actually what is this made of? You know, wood isn't just wood. You know, it's it's been through a process. And what is the damage on the planet? You know, and for people to start having access to that is going to be paramount, right? But you know, so many people don't realize that when they're wearing, say, a cotton a, a cotton t-shirt that is sourced from a specific type of place, there may still be pesticide residue in your fabric that is, uh, you know, or much less when you're wearing, you know, uh, things made with, uh, you know, uh, rayon or something like that. You know, the 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 the, the chemical cast-offs there in, in certain situations, people don't understand, ooh, a $5 t-shirt. Yes, what a good buy I made. And they don't know that they're poisoning themselves possibly yeah. because they're wearing that t-shirt. Um, that that can lead to more sophisticated purchasing 
for those who choose to be educated. And secondly, it can have a massive impact uh, on fast fashion. No, totally. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, and I honestly feel like it's a, an educational piece. There's so many words out there these days that brands can use to give off the impression that they're being sustainable in inverted commas but you know there's words like organic i mean what does organic actually yes. mean what does that mean <laughs> isn't everything technically organic, it's organic all earth, right? but, like, you know it could be organic but it takes like tons of water for the cotton to be produced or fair trade what does fair trade mean from natural resources again <laughs> what does that there's so I many know. you know it's and you know, I think it's fair trade. That's now. always like you good, I'm good. That was yeah, fair. Awesome. Yeah, fine. I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> no, and I love the educational component. And I guess you know, it's almost like maybe we should sub that word out instead of um, going in and being sold. It's that you're really being educated. Oh, and I don't know really? if that shift has ever happened. It's very funny. My husband is um, in sales on you know, kind of a. A, a very dry but big kind of enterprise level, but really at the core of it, he's a sales guy. And so I have taken him and bribed him with food and beverage on many, many retail tours. Um, but at the end, he really enjoys it because he's like, listen, I'm a sales guy, sell me. And a lot of it is really, truly what is this product that my mm -hmm. wife has brought me into the store and she thinks is super yeah. cool? Do, do I think it's super cool? Mm -hmm. Tell me more about it. He's actually almost well, a better retail tourer than I am. You um, just hit on something hugely important. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, Rebecca, it's about why does this matter to me? So I think about something like, uh, not to pick on it, but I think about like a, like a vehicle, like a Hummer. Now, I'm not making fun of people that may choose to drive a Hummer or purchase a Hummer, but I'm saying... They're, they're, most people who drive a Hummer are not doing it because of its off-road performance. It is a status thing. It's a luxury thing. It's whatever it is. It's bad for the environment. It, it, it you know, et cetera, et cetera. All it does is do it. But there, there's so many people who choose to purchase that that care more about the experience that they have than the impact that may be making. But if they were to learn, and I am complete, just to be clear, I'm making this up. But if they were to learn that a Hummer has a 70% higher chance of a rollover in a, cat, in a, in a crash mm -hmm. than any other vehicle, or they were to learn that the, the, um, some other aspect of the vehicle could be harmful to them or their children, that now may affect their thinking in that purchase. So how do we create the education so it isn't just about we have to save the planet, which is so mm -hmm. crucially important, but there's just too many people that that's not a priority or they don't want to, they can't deal with the emotional impact in their head about the, being responsible for those purchase choices or they don't believe it. So how do you start creating, you know, I'm just not going to enjoy life as much or I'm not going to have this available to me or... It's going to be 50 times more expensive to buy something that isn't isn't good for the planet or, you know, to change, yeah. hit people where it counts. No, totally. And I uh, think, no, I was just going to say, I think it kind of comes down to choice. Um, and, you know, and also we can't, you know, the reality is, you know, taking your Hummer example, um, the reality is some people 
are never, we as a society are never going to be able to be fully sustainable. And yes, that guy that's driving the Hummer may be, um, you know, producing X amount of pollution, um, you know, whether he understands it or not, or she understands it or not. Um, But, you know, in, in another part of life, you know, they might be making waves in the way that they clean their clothes or the, the way that they source their food or the way that they, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, consume other um, forms of entertainment. And I guess it, it is that choice thing. And it's something that I talk to brands about a lot. Um, and I think there's been a bit of a fear factor. So... You know, we work with some of the brand, the world's biggest brands, and a lot of the fear that they've had with this whole sustainable message is, I don't want to get caught out. You know, I don't want to state something and say I am sustainable or we are sustainable when we're not. Our practices aren't. We aren't fully circular. But, you know, one of the messages that we give out is you have to start somewhere. And even if it is just the smallest thing, you release one product that you're saying is sustainable. Um, you know, we worked with Converse recently. I don't know if I can drop names on here, um, but you're probably sure. really, really familiar with Converse. And, you know, Converse put their hands up and said, we aren't a sustainable company. We can do our best here. Um, but what we can do is start looking into ways that we can produce product in a sustainable way. So in 2019, they released um, a collection called the Renew Collection. And that, um, you know, that trainer was made from recycled bottles. Um, and they turned the bottles into a polyester, which then made the fabric and then made the rubber soles to the shoe. They had this amazing story that we worked with them on, on, you know, this is our renew and this is us sparking progress and making one step towards being more sustainable. And I think that's kind of where we are as well as consumers. We're on that journey with these brands. You know, we can't wake up tomorrow and change what car we're driving and, you know, only shop from one place because it's sustainable. It is about making that journey. And I think as long as we promise ourselves or as long as we commit that we're going to try and be more sustainable I think that's you know what the biggest um the biggest turning point is um just starting to make slightly different decisions making things differently sourcing things differently um and that's all we can ask at the moment you know no one's um no one's perfect (laughs) no one's Right. And it's funny, Mark, you did make it sound like it was no fun and we had to wake up tomorrow and be monks. (laughs) So I think that, um, and by the way, I hope it puts some pressure on, you know, and I've certainly been through my phases with fast fashion. And then you realize like the next day you're putting it in, hopefully uh, the goodwill pile. Um, But maybe it will put some pressure. And I think we're already seeing this. on fast fashion to not really be fast. We'll still always probably call it fast fashion, but H&M is doing something that um, is sustainable, whatever that actually means. Um, Mm. And I think accepting um, returns Nordstrom here in this country, you can bring things to be, go to a goodwill into Mm -hmm. the Nordstrom local store, whether, and by the way, it was confusing to me at first. I was like, well, I have some stuff, but I didn't buy it at Nordstrom. And they were like, we will welcome it with open arms regardless. Um, And so um, they're, they're catching on, but you're right. It's a spectrum um, and we can't all wake up and do the big bang of it, you know, tomorrow, just because of how our lives are. But um, 
it, it's a it's a fantastic thing to hear and we're hearing it um you know over and over again on this show which is um hopefully a good sign no for sure definitely it's it's definitely on the radar of our clients you know it's one of the one of the main points one of the main requirements now is not just how something looks it's you know how can I be more responsible in my actions and as an agency um, that's what we are trying to support our clients on it's not just designing amazing looking things anymore it's actually how can we shift um, your core DNA and you know your core um, I guess beliefs and approach to product design and um, you know and retail have you taken a look at story dot yet every brand and every product has a story to tell and you can't successfully sell that brand or product without telling the story story dot delivers your story wherever you want it to be heard you can meet your customers at each point in their journey connecting the dots between your business and the consumer to enhance engagement, experience, and conversion. I encourage you to take a look at StoryDot at StoryDot.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-D-O-T.com. Let's, uh, Katie, shift things a little bit if we can. And uh, we haven't talked enough about your business and the things that you do, uh, the range of services that you provide and, and the type of work that gets you into, the trouble it gets you into. Now, uh, well, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, the work that um, Scene Displays does, um, why you really are a a different kind of solution for big brands than a lot of what else is out there uh, and how that leads you to do some really cutting edge things. So yeah, Scene Displays was born about eight years ago. And I guess what makes us slightly different to how we look when we started um, is that we've really evolved with the industry. And I think when we talk about ourselves compared to maybe some of our competitor space, we've been able to do that due to um, quite a high level of insight and research that we do as an agency. So our bread and butter is very much design and production. Um, in layman's terms, you're looking at window displays, pop-up stores, shopping shops, you know, fixtures and fittings, um, very experiential, maybe out-of-store events, um, some really, really exciting product um, projects. But in the background, I guess what f- has really future-proofed us and gives us that kind of USP is that we are super curious. Um, you know, we are innate creatives um we are constantly searching and researching consumer behaviors how people interact with brands um you know looking at the consumer drivers that are really affecting consumers and then applying that to our design strategy um and i often say it's it's not enough anymore to look at something and think wow that looks amazing you know it looks phenomenal you know, it's it's around that human connectivity and actually ensuring that what we're doing is is creating a feeling. Um, you know, when we approach projects, we think about them in what do we want someone to feel? What do we want them to think? And what do we want them to do? 
And those three kind of elements um, really, I guess, enable us to produce really effective retail activations and really effective events because we're understanding that consumer before we're diving into just creating something that looks cool. I guess a little bit more about the brands that we work with. So we work with a real spectrum of clients. So some of the bigger giants are Nike, we've worked with for about seven years now. Um, We work on a lot of their in-store activations. So in London, we have a big store called Nike Town. Um, I know you guys have a a Nike Town out in Soho as well. It's a, it's a, a big store. It's got a basketball court on the top floor. You know, it's very experiential. Um, you kind of walk into there and you're in, you know, Nike world. Um, and we work with them on strategy. We work on them with design and production. And then we work with a lot smaller brands. So maybe some of those brands that only appear online at the moment and they're looking to go offline. Um, so we're looking at how can they tell their story in a physical space. Um, and some of those brands, um, I'm trying to think of some brands that maybe would uh, be relevant for you guys, but we have Selfridges over here, um, which I'm sure you guys have heard about. It's a bit like a sax. Um, and we work with a lot of shopping shops in that space. Um, we actually recently, well, a couple of years back, um, did um, ASAP Rocky. Do you know ASAP Rocky, the rapper? Um, he's actually from Harlem. No, <laughs> He's from Harlem and he wanted to bring his native homeland to London. So we actually worked with him on producing a mini New York um, landscape into Selfridges. Um, so that was a, a really good example of how we kind of brought something physical from something that actually was just in in Rocky's mind. Um, so, yeah, a real, real spectrum of clients. And what we do for them is we basically tell their stories for them. Um, we help them launch products. We help them run campaigns. Um, we hope we we help them show up in the physical landscape. What What are some of the uh, ideas that you've been able to implement that have been the most cutting edge and and exciting to you that are out in the world? So they're not a super secret, but they really at the time were just like man, nobody's done this before. This is such a cool new idea. I think probably some of the stuff that we've done with Nike, um, you know, we've working with Nike is, is pretty phenomenal. They're very, um, you know, they're, they're such a giant and they're such, um, the way that they think and then the way that they strategize, you know, is always one step ahead. And I guess I can't really put my finger on one thing that we've done, um we've done so many amazing things i mean okay one of the things that we did um for the marathon 2019 we completely transformed nike town into a runner's destination and we we really brought the marathon to life through not only the product but through the experience when you walked in that door we had trial areas you know we had a whole area in the store that had running machines but then there was an online element. So we used, um, I guess, like QR codes that you could link to your phone. And it actually connected you to runners around the world. 
Um, so when you were running the marathon in your own time or in your own um, city, it meant that you felt like you had that kind of pack mentality and you were running alongside all of these people globally. But it was all through the magic of your phone. Um, so, yeah, working with them has meant that we've worked on, you know, a real spectrum of projects. Again, really pushing that sustainability story, working with some really exciting materials, um, collaborating with some amazing, you know, sports stars, um, and also just getting our hands on some amazing product, you know, being in the know of some of these amazing trainers um, and, and running running kits has been awesome. Um, and actually what's quite interesting with Nike is we get quite a lot of training um, about the products, which is great. Um, so they have these things that they call Ekins. So it's actually Nike spelt backwards. Um, so E-K-I-N. And the Ekins um, work. It's cool, isn't it? <laughs> the Ekins work in-house and they're basically these Nike gurus. And they're there to educate you on everything Nike. So whether it be the history, whether it be about a certain product. And as an agency that partners with them, we get all of this training as well. So it's great. You really feel like you're part of that family. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a brilliant brand to work with. And we've done some amazing projects with them. You know, when you're dealing with brands that are global brands and they, they're across you know, even just the UK and the US, not so different and yet different culturally in some ways, <clears throat> you know, different things appeal to different cultures, both the the materials that are used, the way a store is laid out, the type of language that is used, the music choices, potentially, um, even the aromas themselves, um, to, to so many things matter. How do you think about centering on a specific approach to experience knowing that it's going to hit retail stores in a variety of cultures, knowing that that experience can't identically interact. I mean, people are people. Yes, but it's not going to hit exactly the same notes with people from different countries. But at the same time, particularly when those stores are in high, highly tour, uh, high tourist, uh, traffic areas, they need to connect with people from around the world, especially in, you know, cities like New York and London and so forth. So, so you have to have something that is mainstream enough that it can connect to a wide range of cultures, but isn't so nominal that it doesn't really make an impact. It seems like such a complex web of psychological strategizing how do you how if at all is that a part of the conversation when you're working with a big brand you know like your Nike's of the world i guess it's a big question i you only know, ask the big questions that's like <laughs> <all> I, <do. laughs> I think i think um i think one of the things i guess to establish is you know there's different types of of shopping and exploring and Yes, you know, you've obviously got your local consumer and you've got your tourist consumer. Um, but more often than not, we can look at stores in that way. So, yes, we might be working with Nike, but potentially a way that we're portraying a campaign in a more neighborhood store is probably quite different to how we're relaying a campaign in a high traffic kind of flagship store. 
So yes, you'd be running the same campaign, but you would have an understanding that maybe the Nike town in Oxford Circus, um, which is, I guess, a bit like your Times Square, um, is definitely going to cater towards that, you know, that more tourist aesthetic. So maybe it's through the language that we use. Maybe it's through the actual talent that we celebrate a campaign with. It's more globally understood. Maybe it's about the services offered in that store. They might be more high level rather than very localized. And then when you shift it to maybe a more neighborhood store, you can go really local with the messaging. You can play on, you know, the exact location of where you are. And, you know, weirdly, let's not forget that when you're a tourist, you know, one of the things you love about shopping, right, is actually exploring a different culture and a different way of approaching things. So actually, when I'm out in New York, what I love about, um, you know, walking down Broadway or, you know, going to going shopping, I actually really appreciate the fact that I'm getting I'm I'm in the thick of New York. You know, I don't want to feel like I'm in London or I'm being sold to like a tourist. So I guess it's about getting that balance of tourists are out there because they want to soak up the local um, culture. But if they're in a certain store, it's because they love that brand. And actually, the brand just shifts the way that they talk slightly. But they already know that that consumer is in there because they love the product. Um, And as long as it's got the right product in there and the right support systems, whether you're a tourist or you're local, it should speak, speak to you in the same way. That's a great answer. I appreciate it. And then the other question I had that's kind of tangentially related is, you know, you can't sell a product without storytelling. You can't sell a brand without storytelling in some way, whether it's in the marketing or whether it's in the way that associates interact with customers or, or, or it's in the actual, you know, store setup and display setup itself. Um, how are you looking ahead at new strategies and tools of storytelling? Um, obviously innovation makes incredible things possible from holograms to VR and AR to, you know, just deploying stories through QR codes to, um, you know, um, audio to video to pushing, you know, to beacon technology, you know, white labeling apps, et cetera, et cetera. So how are you, how are you kind of thinking about what the next wave of storytelling is and its place in, you know, driving in particular the bridge between physical retail and the realities of e-commerce? Yeah, well, I think you've, you know, you've mentioned quite a lot of, you know, the strategies there that we would probably employ. And the online to offline journey is going to be so paramount as, you know, we head into the next 10, 20 years, even as we head out of the pandemic, you know, we've done everything from working, conversing, consuming, entertaining ourselves all through our handheld devices or our laptops. And I think, you know, one of the most important things about storytelling is actually getting that seamless journey and encouraging us back into that physical space. So, you know, even your mention around VR and AR and all of this kind of augmented um, reality, the the lines are emerging and, you know, this kind of digital landscape is definitely developing and definitely becoming a landscape that us as consumers are are becoming more fluent in, Um, you know, we're no longer looking at 
online and offline, we're actually talking about how can we bring the two together to make true impact and, and tell really strong stories. So when we strategize, we talk about what language are we using online and how can we mirror that in stores? You know, what content are we showing online and how can we mirror that in stores? And it's all about this, yeah, creating a, creating a seamless journey and, and ensuring that um, they complement each other. Um, so yeah, AR is something that we've already started to explore a lot with some of our brands. Um, Alexandra McQueen recently, we did an activation where if you held your phone over a certain part of the physical display, um, lots of butterflies started flying around the space and it felt like you were kind of being embodied by this, um, I guess, this swarm of butterflies, which was absolutely incredible. Um, so that type of interaction in the physical space is become going to become massive. Um, so, yeah, it's super exciting. And the stories that we're going to be able to tell are going to be so much more in-depth and strengthening. Speaking of stories, I would love to hear more about the story of Katie Mitchell as we jump into some personal questions on Retail Is Your Business right after this. Culture starts at the top and great customer experience, the only competitive strategy in today's world, is fueled by great leadership. We hear and read this every day, but many brands don't drive customer-first strategy. For those at the top who want to make that leap but don't know how, we'll learn from leaders who share what you must do to become customer-centric. I am Liliana Petrova, and this is The One Thing. The One Thing Customer Experience from the Top is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever the best podcasts are found. All right, Katie, this is maybe arguably Rebecca and my favorite part of the show. I don't know, but you learn some pretty interesting things uh, where we get to know you more as a human being. Um, okay, a little good. less about scene display, a little <laughs> more about Katie. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so, Rebecca, are you queued up with one or should I lead the way? Uh, I have one. It's it's one of my go-tos. <laughs> All right. Go for it. Let's find out more about Katie. Uh, so I, I assume you are a, a, a lifelong Londoner, uh, if you will, or I should just say UK because maybe it's not London proper. But um, when the borders are opened up and we can move around again, um, what what would be the first thing if I could come over uh, that I should do? And you can make it related to retail or not, but um, there are so many fabulous things about London. But in in your opinion, Ooh. my go to would be finding a great hot like going to a good restaurant and not sitting outdoors going I'm trying to think of like one of my favorite restaurants that you should head to um I'd say head to I'd, I'll probably say head to London and that's not just me being biased because I love London but I do love London there's nothing beats the capital in the summer um so hopefully the borders will open for the summer but I would say um 
head into Soho um, and, oh God, that's such a hard question. I feel like it should be an easy one. I know. Well, by the way, I think we're all thinking there's so many things we would want to do, but I love where you're going. So, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, I would say go shopping, but I feel like that's oh, right. just an obvious, question, um, obvious answer. Um, oh, gosh. Do you and know if you what don't want to call out the name of a... Yeah, go ahead. I would say... I'd say not... Actually, I'm not going to go down the restaurant route. I'm going to say head to South Bank. I don't know if you've been to London before, but the South Bank in the summer is where it is at. So the South Bank is a really beautiful spot that runs down the side of the Thames. It's in central London and it bridges um, kind of one end of London to the other. And you can walk all the way along the river. And as you go, there's food trucks, there's museums, there's galleries, one of my favourite galleries along there is the Haywood. So I'd definitely say to head there. And then as you head towards the end of South Bank, you'll end up at the Tate. And the Tate is a feast for the eyes. So, yeah, I'd say have a walk along the South Bank um, and head into all the galleries um, along there as well. Amazing. You, you painted a, a beautiful picture. Um, I will say I've been to London many times, but not in a long time. I used to, and I'm going to date myself. I have uh, kind of two best girlfriends in New York where we would look for a cheap rate in the New York Times. So I'm not sitting yeah. online. And in February, when it was dirt cheap, we would fly over for a long weekend, probably President's Weekend, and we'd put all three of us in one room with a cot. And uh, to, to the shopping point and the experience point, we would save up our money. So we were in a different you know, tax bracket then, and we would take the subway to JFK because we wanted more money in our pockets to do the things like getting into the Tate and you know, yeah. walking around and shopping um, to go there and... Um, Sans taking the subway to the airport. Hopefully, I've uh, graduated from that, but um, can't can't wait to do it again. And lo love your recommendation. Oh, good. Well, yeah. If you want some good tips, the South Bank, I can send them to you. But it's actually quite funny hearing, <laughs> hearing a New Yorker say that they want to come to London to shop because it's always been the other way around. It's always been like, oh, I'm saving up to well, get to New York. And, but it's actually refreshing to right. hear. It makes me feel really um, proud. Um, we have amazing shops in London. Um, you know, I love getting lost even now. And I, I go there every day for work when the world's normal. So yeah that's yep, good to yep. hear. no absolutely listen you used to only have top shop and we didn't have it here so that was kind of on right. the high level and then you know <laughs> even thrift shopping on the the another level more local um i knew it was things that i probably hadn't seen and touched and didn't come from new york so katie uh if if what if someone were to do a deep dive on Google and try to find out everything they could from anything you've ever talked about, interviews you've done, you know, your your LinkedIn presence and everything, what's something about you that they wouldn't discover but might be a really interesting thing to know about you? I think I think it's actually probably something that I've discovered about myself only in the last year because of the pandemic and lockdown and you know, okay. I think that a lot of people think of me as I'm, well, I am a big extrovert. I love meeting people. You know, I've got an opinion. Mm -hmm. 
And I think you'd see from looking at my social media is, you know, I love to voice my opinion. I love to give advice. I'm quite active on Instagram. Um, I love being around my friends and my family and I love going out. And I think what I've actually discovered, and I mean, I don't even know if this is that interesting, is I'm actually quite a big homebody. I love, you know, I'm mm-hmm. really enjoying just being a bit boring, to be honest. <laughs> um you know, I recently had a, a baby boy, um, and maybe that's what's changed. Oh, congratulations! My life. Well, I say recently; he's sixteen months old. Um, but yeah, it's it's he's still a baby in my eyes, what he is. But um, and maybe that's been a bit of a turning point. Is that you know my my days of going out have changed, and um, yeah, you probably wouldn't get that much of me that I actually enjoy a bit of a chilled bit of a chilled one really but i don't know if that's exciting is that kind of what you were after well that's fine well no i hadn't wasn't after anything but (laughs) but i'll 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 piggyback on the question and that is other than the fact that you have a 16 month old at home as someone whose job it is to build experiences if you will um and displays but experiences for uh for shopping what have you done in your own home that makes your home the exact experience that you want it to be my husband would enjoy that question because we (laughs) (laughs) only because um he he works in quite a similar um arena to me he's a a designer as well um and you know uh something that we've been really keen on doing we actually bought our our house that we are in a couple of years ago and it's a bit of a project um and we've really enjoyed doing it up and you know slowly but surely kind of injecting love and history and value into it and i think one of the things we've done is one of the things i've tried to do and my husband is probably being a better person for doing this. He's just buying things that have got a bit of a story. So not buying things just for the sake of it. You know, I, I admit I do love a bit of Ikea. You know, if I need some shelves, I need to put them up. I've got no patience. Whereas <laughs> my husband is very much about searching for something that's got a bit of history to it, you know, finding um, weird and wonderful bits of furniture and chairs. And so when you walk into the home, you really feel like there's like a history to it. Um, So, yeah, I think it's about the products that we've placed around the house Um, and and kind of living in it and realising how it flows before we do any big pieces of work to it. Um, So, yeah, I think it's just about building building a, a real nice collection of things around you that means something rather than just consuming for the sake of it. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. You know, speaking of Ikea, um, uh, thank you for answering that. I appreciate it. Speaking of Ikea, did you hear that uh, the Ikea catalog is now a podcast? No. I heard it was going away, but I did not hear it was becoming a podcast. Wow. Wow. Yeah, they they it's such an interesting concept. They um this is this is somewhat recent news. The the Bible-sized catalog has been turned into an audio version as a quote handy and hands-free alternative, uh, which 
the 2021 catalog is its final edition ever. It's now a nearly four-hour podcast with the narrator flicking through each page and describing what's in it. Um, and what an interesting development in terms of, you know, we talk about storytelling. We talk about storytelling. We talk about, you know, one of the most prolific like in-store experiences that there is, is Ikea. And now you can still have that in-store experience, but you're, uh, it's presented to you and previewed to you in an entirely different way. How fascinating. And I wonder how they're getting around all the people who have hearing issues uh, in terms of their ability to, Obviously, the catalog didn't help with people with sight issues, I guess, but yeah. it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting approach for them. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anyway. if I have four hours of IKEA in me. Um, no, but it's an, it's an interesting. <laughs> and uh, listen, you know, I have uh, oddly shaped apartment, and it's been really good to me. But uh, it's really interesting. Um, you should post that on LinkedIn. People have a field day. I yeah. Know, right? Okay, maybe I will. Anyway, uh, anyway, uh, sorry to get in the weeds. I just had to had to mention that because I because I thought you'd really appreciate it, Katie. Uh, yeah, no, um, of course. I know that they that. they did a um, virtual reality like bedroom. They made like a kind of they compute gamified um, yeah. one of their shopping experiences recently, which I actually saw on LinkedIn, which was quite a cool a cool way of doing it because gamification is going to be huge this year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't hear about the podcast. I mean, how do you flick it's, to the page that you need? Well, well, the other thing <laughs> well, that I think is interesting is it takes it takes it into an individual experience instead of necessarily something you might do with your spouse, where you would look sure. through together. Almost it's like yeah. a Sunday afternoon activity. Like someday we could get this or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, I, I I don't know a lot of people huddled around their their iPhone listening to a podcast together necessarily for this for four hours, much less an hour. I'm not poo-pooing it. It's a very interesting approach for them to say, we just can't print the catalog anymore, but we're, we're going to, we're going to still present the information, but anyway. All right. Uh, I have a question for you, Katie. How can people connect with you directly if you'd like to invite that? And certainly obviously with scene displays. No, for sure. Um, email. So you can connect to me by email. Um, I don't know if you want me to share that now, but that's probably the best it's way. Up, it's up to you. Sure. Um, which is katie.mitchell at scenedisplays.com. Um, we've also got our Scene Displays Instagram, which is super active and it's got all of our recent projects on there. It's got our thought leadership and it's actually got links to a lot of our insight and research reports as well. Um, and obviously our website. Our website's got an active blog and uh, report section. So if you go onto there, it's got a lot of our thought leadership too. Awesome. All right, well, Katie Mitchell, the Managing Director at Scene Displays, uh, coming to us by way of London. I'm so happy you took the time to join us. It was such a wonderful conversation and great to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode of Retail Is Your Business uh, for Rebecca Fitz. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Katie. (laughs) Thank you, Rebecca. I'm Mark Rako. Have a great day, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. This has been Retail Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2020. 
Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business.